32 counties 32 questions My name is Una And mine is Andrea And this is United, United Ireland, Ireland. <laughs> Right on cue Wow it's a long weekend Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and see where in the world it brings us This week though we're not we're bringing you on an important episode about the debacle over the public service card Increasingly, personal data and privacy are battlegrounds upon which citizens are fighting for their rights. And after a landmark investigation by the Data Protection Commissioner, it was determined that the state had effectively demanded that people use an identity card to access certain public services without the proper legal basis. Now, this saga calls into question why the card was pursued when all along various campaigners were raising red flags and questioning the legality of the scheme. And now some people are calling for the resignation of the Minister for Social Protection, Regina Doherty. The Data Protection Commissioner determined that data collected on 3.2 million users of this card must now be deleted and that there was no legal reason to make individuals obtain the card in order to access state services like renewing your driver's licence or applying for a college grant and all that kind of stuff. Today, we're going to discuss this issue with the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, and we're going to drill down into what is for some a confusing and convoluted issue around national identity cards, government overreaching and retaining data on millions of individuals in this country. This is serious stuff. But first, Patreon, help us. (laughs) What is Patreon? Oh, yes, that online system that allows us to be paid for doing the work we're doing. It's Tuesday. We've had a long weekend. We probably could have been happier staying in bed, but we're here doing this. So that deserves to be paid. So why don't you take yourself onto the Internet, log on to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. And for the mere amount of three euro a month, you could help support our hangover asses. I think that was a really authentic and meaningful ask from you, Andrea. It was. I'm authentic all the time, contrary (laughs) to popular belief. But first, again, but second, (laughs) the week that was. Andrea, tell me about the week that was, please. The week that was. When I was starting putting this together, I was like, did actually anything happen outside Love Sensation? It was a lot of fun. Oh, my God. It's so, like, it took my breath away. And we have upcoming, once we figure out what on earth it sounds like, the first ever live United Ireland podcast. It was a very special episode of Tuna Chicken Roll. It was an absolute ball. So we're going to hopefully drop that to you guys on Patreon as a bonus treat. I think it's going to be very interesting to listen back to it because it was so much crack. Don't you know sometimes crack doesn't translate through the airwaves? Well, we'll see. It involved table dancing. It involved... Panty, Davina and Veda sharing their ultimate tuna chicken rolls. It a lot of shade. A lot of shade. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get that over to you guys this week if it passes the <laughs> censor. <laughs> it was so much fun, look. It was brilliant. Well done to all of the mother team and everyone involved in Love Sensation and Cormac and Lisa especially. What much el- less crack than that. And on a very similar LGBTQI plus vain Mike Pence was announced that he has co- was coming to Ireland and frankly the reception he received online has not been glorious to say the least Now there was a good bit of shade um, when Leo and his partner went to the White House and they met together with Mike Pence which was quite an intentional thing I think um, and uh, since then I think that was a really good thing yeah, I mean, because it's it's obviously Mike Pence uh, has pursued uh, various homophobic policies in his tenure as a politician and 
um, also his weird robotic uh, vice presidency as well um, and naturally like so many other people in the White House he has Irish relatives so now wants to come and hang out in our country so whatever Meanwhile uh, there was a bomb in Fermanagh um, in 2019 um, and a lot of the reaction to this has been like no tell me we don't need a backstop and this is even after the last few days uh, there has been a lot of talk about how the backstop is in bits um, from the UK um, so yeah I think this is just starting what could be the rise of more of this kind of activity. Yeah, it's really troubling, especially considering what the police were saying, that they basically had been called uh, to defuse um, some kind of suspect device, which turned out to be a hoax. And then it seems that uh, the people who um, planted the actual bomb were trying to basically lure them to, um, you know, basically like kill police officers. Uh, so very, very troubling. And as Boris Johnson continues to be an absolute dose in Europe, um, the backstop will definitely be to the front of everyone's minds. Going further afield, this insane, uh, really disturbing case in El Salvador has had some kind of uh, conclusion this week. Uh, a woman who was jailed for, th- she was actually 33 months in jail, which is bananas, after her baby was stillborn. Um, so she was acquitted this week, which is thank the Lord that that happened. Um, but I think there's a lot of questions now of what happens now in El Salvador and how they're going to roll back their anti-abortion rights and uh, stillborn issues when people are being put in jail for that. Yeah, and it brings into focus um, the repeal movement again and how it's really important for Irish people to kind of maintain those channels of solidarity to various places in the world where things are not as good. Tipperary won won the All-Ireland final. Um, Yay, sports ball. Jim Carroll, our previous guest, will be very happy with that as a tip man. Trump is considering buying Greenland in another one of his harebrained, stupid, uh, distractahontas ideas. Um, and Distractahontas. Uh, oh, no, oh my God, robbing. Um, and what was this about him tweeting a picture <laughs> of some hotel or something? Oh my God. So he tweeted a picture and then his son did as well of... The tension of the Greenland's kind of barren with colourful roofs on houses, and but they're few and far between, kind of spread out, and it's very like I'd say they have a very good life, quality of life, etc. And then he tweeted, and it was on a waterfront, and he tweeted just a picture of like the Trump Terror straight in from Vegas. It was all gold and ostentatious with Trump across it, and he's like, just being like, I won't do this, I promise, but I want to buy Greenland. Is, are you serious? I haven't been on Twitter in recent oh days. Oh my God, I am so serious. That is ridiculous. Although there is a precedent, of course, for America buying bits of the world. Um, Andrew Johnson bought Alaska from the Russians in 1867. And the Louisiana Purchase, right? That bought like half a billion acres of what is now the United States of America from the Mississippi to Canada. I'm only learning about Irish history from each week to week from my like uh, county knowledge. So I'm not quite into the Louisiana Purchase, but it sounds shit. Yeah, that was... Was it good? Was it a good? Well, I mean, uh, I don't know. Depends on his angle. They bought a load of land off the French, 1803. It was Roosevelt. Does that make sense? Teddy Roosevelt? Theodore Roosevelt? Let's go with that. <laughs> um, and But the Greenland thing reminds me of that episode of Borgen where Brigitte, the fictional... Danish Prime Minister goes to Greenland because there's something to do with American military or prisoners of war being flown through it and then she goes and realises what a shitty job Denmark has done in Greenland and tries to make things better. 
anybody watched Borgen? Andrea is looking at me. I'm like, what? But more to the point, what is this trying to hide, highlight? There's a strategy to everything this lunatic does and every time he does something like this I'm like what is behind this you're trying to either like uh, distract a hantus yeah uh, but like I feel like there's something more that they're like trying to lure into public consciousness that w- won't be so shocking when it does come about yeah probably. and it can't just be buying Greenland but who knows well, we never. were talking about Hong Kong last week and since then there was another protest which I think they're estimating there'd be a few hundred thousand people at but something far larger happened. Yeah, they actually uh, didn't get permission to have their protest. They were allowed in the park and then um, in a very... Oh, I wonder what the word is that I'd like to say. This is a two-Tuesday episode, isn't it? Uh, 1.7 million people turned up anyway. It started torrential rain they continued on a pace they all put their umbrellas up the pictures are stunning of all the umbrellas um, but it's gotten to the point now where people in Hong Kong are like if we don't keep going things are just going to get worse so they can't back down now so it raises the question where is this all going to go are Beijing going to open up to conversations or are Hong Kong people going to have to keep fighting and fighting I think they're probably going to have to keep protesting and just see see what happens. Much closer to home uh, in Dublin, in Dublin 7, something's happening in Smithfield. Something is happening. Um, The wonderful horse boy mural, um, which I'm pretty sure is Aches from Subset. Yeah, I think so, yeah. definitely an Aches one. Um, But it was commissioned by a tenant in a house in Smithfield. um, And now it went, they put it into Dublin City Council because the landlord or the person who owns the house wants it taken down but they've put in for planning permission to Dublin City Council they put in for like reasons to keep it so whatever the lingo that is the retention thing yeah yeah and then Dublin City Council decided that it did need planning so it's gone to on board Pinala um, and they're going to rule on this on the 4th of December so nothing's going to happen but in the meantime there's being a not a survey Petition. Petition. Wow. <laughs> this is definitely a Tuesday episode. There's being a petition uh, sent around for people to sign to try and keep it because I think, and there's a lot of comments online about like, well, it's not a landmark and this and that. And the whole point of street arts is that it, it comes and goes. But I think it's something that really sums up this that area, especially, especially with all the horse markets that used to be there. And uh, yeah, when our climate change issues all explode and we have to ride around on horses again it will be a sign of the times well that was really a <laughs> twist that I did not see coming at the end of that but I mean Smithfield has been a battleground for subset before with murals they had their big Stormzy mural which they had a lot of um, tension with Dublin City Council over and well I mean that's kind of been resolved now because basically the building has been knocked down and uh, there's probably <laughs> Do you know what they should do just build a hotel yeah, it gets think, around all planning I think that is probably what's happening definitely It's the only thing that blocks. apparently doesn't need planning you can get an, a hotel up faster than you can get a mural Seems to be the case Now to the topic that we're covering today the public service card So a little bit of an explainer about this, because it is kind of a complex topic. Andrea, what is the public service card? Una, I am so glad you asked. In fact, it's a card that consolidates and verifies your identity so that you can access various public services without giving the same information to multiple organisations. It was initially introduced in 2011 for social welfare payments. The Department of Social Protection advertised the card as a method of reducing 
welfare fraud and we all know how much they love to do campaigns about that. Eventually you could use it to apply for free travel, revenue, social welfare, first time passport application, lost passports, citizenship application, driver theory test, a driving test and licence appointment. 60 million has been spent on the project. So here's a rough timeline of events. Okay, so in 2011, the public service card was introduced uh, kind of as a pilot project for social welfare payments in a few places around the country, um, in the Kings Inn area of Dublin. So it's Dublin 7 again, in Sligo and in Tullamore. And in 2012, this was basically rolled out to everyone accessing social welfare payments and for child benefit as well. And um, as Andre was saying, one of the reasons was to tackle social welfare fraud. But at that point, they basically estimated that rolling out the card was going to cost about 24 million euro. In 2016, so four years after that, it was announced that people applying for a passport would need the card. And at that point, certain privacy campaigners began to raise misgivings about whether this was kind of introducing a national identity card by the back door, effectively. And around this time, then, it was revealed that the cost of rolling out the card was going to be 60 million euros. So massive jump. Now, fast forward to autumn 2017. And a really interesting case arose when a pensioner who didn't have a card and basically refused to apply for one, as is their right, ended up being owed thousands in money of their pension. I think it was about 13,000 euros in back payments. And they asked the Department of Social Protection whether the card was mandatory. So you basically had the situation where it wasn't possible for this pen- pensioner to satisfy the minister as to her identity uh, without being registered in a process which resulted in them being issued with the public service card. So there was no way for them to verify their identity without having to go into this process that ultimately culminated in them having to be issued with a public service card. So um, the woman received, this pensioner received several letters from the Department of Social Protection telling her to register. And then all this weird language kind of started to come out of the department, which was saying the card's not mandatory, but maybe it's compulsory. And we kind of got into the semantics about that. And people started kind of saying, you know, what is actually going on with this card? Are we all going to have to have it? And if they're saying it's not a national identity card, why is it so difficult to verify your identity to government departments without having it? So this is when the full scope of the card began to emerge. That people would need it to apply for driving licences, student grants, dental payments through PRSI and a whole load of public services. And it began to take on the shape of a national identity card. But the legal basis for having that kind of card was never really created. So the tension around the card was that the government simply can't decide to introduce something like this card without showing that it's totally necessary. And then in October 2017, the Data Protection Commissioner began investigating the card. He had people like Simon McGar and TJ McIntyre raising a lot of concerns about the card and forecasting that if it continued, the state might have to pay compensation to the millions of people this card was now being rolled out to. And another player in raising concerns was the ICCL, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, And their concerns included that the card may be illegal under European law, that the card was initially targeting economically vulnerable people, such as people in receipt of social welfare, uh, child benefits, state grants, um, pensions, that kind of thing. Um, And they actually made submissions to one of the UN committees on on that basis, um, that basically the cost of the card rollout had escalated to 60 million euro, 
all the while the savings uh, with regards to welfare fraud appeared to only be 2.5 million euro that's according to the Department of Social Welfare at the time so the ICCL was basically saying that this card has no clear legislative basis that it's not a necessary or proportionate system for achieving access of services or fraud prevention and that there's a serious risk that your personal kind of intimate data could be hacked could be leaked, could be sold. So that's the whole thing about like if a government or a department is gathering all this data, what would happen if it ended up in the wrong hands? And the ICCL also said that while people might think that, okay, well, this is convenient, it just streamlines everything. Um, you know, if you just have one card to apply for all this suite of services, then isn't that a good thing? But they're kind of saying that convenience isn't good enough reason for the government to potentially um, maybe violate your privacy. So officials in the Department of Social Protection and the Minister Regina Doherty repeatedly defended the card over the years. And the conversation around this data retention escalated when GDPR came in in May of 2018, which is European law that allows EU citizens greater control over their personal data. In a moment, we'll be talking to the Data Protection Commissioner about their investigation into all of this. But there are still a few questions about why all this happened. Did the Department of Social Protection bullishly refuse to stop a ball it had started rolling? Was this ideological, arrogant or incompetent? And who knew what when? Considering the repeated concerns raised, why didn't the department and the government say stop right now, take stock and let not let things get this far? And now that the um, Data Protection Commissioner has kind of completed their investigations and their findings are going to be um, published in more detail next month, what happens next? Because in theory, if there are 3.2 million liabilities, basically there's 3.2 million um, cards were issued by the time the Data Protection Commissioner started doing their investigation, I think it's up to 4 million now. What does that mean in terms of potential compensation? Because if you looked at it in really rudimentary terms, there was a piece in the examiner saying that, let's say a conservative estimate is €100 per person compensation. That is €320 million. So all of a sudden, your €2.4 or €2.5 million saving welfare fraud looks pretty paltry. Before we talk to Helen Dixon, here's a rundown of kind of the broad points in um, her investigation, which is really kind of an earth shattering conclusion, I suppose, uh, when it comes to the government and specifically the Department of Social Protection and the Minister Regina Doherty. So the Data Protection Commissioner's investigation is pretty landmark and it was into the legality of the public services card. That investigation had three main conclusions, which Helen will hopefully expand on for us. The first one is that there's no lawful basis for a person to be told that they must have a public services card to access a state service, except for social welfare and benefits. The Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection has no lawful basis for keeping documents provided, such as utility bills, for the 3.2 million cards issued so far. That data on 3.2 million people must now be destroyed. And the department also hasn't been sufficiently transparent in terms of the personal data it processes in the context of the public service card. So um, the Data Protection Commissioner found that there was a legal basis in connection with issuing um, these cards to confirm the identity of a person claiming or receiving a social welfare benefit. So the social welfare benefit part, which was the initial part of the um, public service card rollout, seems to be okay, but that there was no legal basis for issuing those cards for other transactions uh, between individuals and state bodies other than the transactions the Department of Social Protection would have been uh, engaging in. 
in addition to all that, the commissioner said that the department, uh, the Department of Social Protection now, um, that it was retaining these documents indefinitely that were supplied by citizens who were kind of going about the process of applying for the card. So that was everything from like utility bills, I suppose, is a big one, um, different ways of verifying their identity, that that kind of indefinite retention of those documents has to stop and that it actually specifically contravenes um, the 1988 and the 2003 Data Protection Acts. So these are really serious things. That's the top line. And we're going to talk to Helen Dixon now about what else was going on with her investigation. Helen Dixon, you are the Data Protection Commissioner. That's right. (laughs) I'll concede that much. That's a mad job, isn't it? Uh, it's 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 a hectic uh, enough job. There is uh, an endless amount of issues that at any one moment in time we can look into. Uh, under the legal regime that we operate, we have an obligation to handle complaints from all individuals. So this year we'll be in receipt of in excess of 10,000 complaints from individuals in all sorts of contexts about issues that concern them in terms of the handling of their personal data. And then alongside all of those individual complaints, we're trying to conduct very large scale investigations into issues where we can see potential systemic risks. So uh, at the moment, we have 61 large scale investigations underway. 21 of them are into what we call the big tech companies and a lot of very fundamental issues about the basis on which they're collecting our personal data, how transparent they're being about. It, uh, what kind of third parties our data is being disclosed to uh, and whether the consent we're giving is really valid uh, under the general data protection regulation. So, yeah, you call it a mad job. Uh, it's it's uh, a huge it's team. busy. <laughs> we we have a, a, an expanding team and a rapidly expanding team. When I came into the role almost five years ago, we had 27 staff Today, we have 140. Uh, and actually, this morning, uh, I spent the morning shortlisting uh, in respect of another competition where we're running to recruit additional staff. So we're expanding considerably. We, we could do with more staff. Um, but but 140 is, is a lot better than where we were five years ago. Before we get into the public services card, what has been the impact uh, more broadly of GDPR on what you guys do? So the impact of GDPR has been massive. It's a game changer for data protection authorities. Uh, and in particular, it's a game changer because I think you'll be familiar with the fact that what's significant about the GDPR as compared to the previous EU law, which was a, a directive dating back to 1995, is that the GDPR has this harder enforcement edge to it. Uh, and so it's given us an administrative fining capability, uh, up to 20 million or 4% of global turnover for, for multinational companies, up to 1 million for public sector bodies. Uh, and it's also given us a, a range of corrective measures that we can impose. So the the types of fair procedures and due diligence that we have to apply in investigations where ultimately we can impose those significant sanctions, which we will do in a number of cases, uh, means that we've had to overhaul the the type of procedures that we apply. Um, 
Also, I think the huge publicity around the GDPR, the fact that everybody talks about the GDPR and knows what it is, means that people are a lot more uh, familiar with data protection rights and what's involved and what they should be entitled to in terms of accessing copies of their their personal data. So we're in receipt of a lot more individual complaints than we were prior to the GDPR. Do people not just keep pressing accept, accept, accept? And when I say people, I mean me. When it pops up on articles, (laughs) I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is that, am I the minority? Uh, Oh, oh, you're absolutely not in in the minority. For most of us, uh, we we sacrifice reading those long privacy policies for convenience. Uh, If I'm lost trying to find my way around a city, am I going to turn on Google Maps and accept or or am I not? Uh, so you're you're far from being in the minority. There are lots of interesting uh, and fascinating academic studies done uh, in various countries that calculate the number of hours each of us would have to spend to read the privacy policies for a typical set of apps and websites that any of us might access in a year. And it's, of course, ridiculous. It's into the order of weeks and nobody does. So what we're trying to do as a data protection authority is make sure that uh, you're getting intelligible and concise information up front when your consent is being sought and that behind the scenes uh, there isn't weasel language that's uh, driving you into accepting something that's not in your interests and doesn't protect your rights. But but it's a long, long journey we're going to have to change the behaviours of companies mm. uh, under the GDPR and we're going to have to do it step by step with big cases that we decide that will set pre and and start to change how how parts of the industry operate. This week, the biggest story in Ireland around data and around citizen rights with regards to privacy is the public service card. And on the back of your investigation, which has been called a landmark one, what was the genesis of that investigation? And why did you guys have to get involved in this situation? So actually, what we call the Public Services Card Project dates back about 20 years in in Ireland. The first pronunciation of this card appeared in a 1998 Social Welfare Act. Um, So it's been around for a long time and the Data Protection Authority in Ireland and my predecessors had always concerned themselves with what was evolving in terms of the Public Services Card. Uh, so on a number of occasions, my predecessor, direct predecessor, Billy Hawks, had called out issues of concern about uh, clarity of policy direction of what was to become the public services card and concerns about function creep uh, as it evolved. When I came on board five years ago, Uh, I also had concerns about the transparency in relation to the public services card. What was it and what was it not? Originally, when it was conceived, it was very specifically intended not and never to be a photo identity card. It wasn't going to have a photo uh, in the first instance. And if it was ever to be presented uh, as part of evidence of ID, a passport and driver's license would have to accompany it. So it was intended in the first instance to be a card that would be used in actual card-based transactions. So like swipe transactions where it was read by public sector bodies. And it could also be used remotely with chip and pin technology a little bit like like banking cards. But it evolved over time such that it has now become some sort of form of photo ID. It's not entirely clear what it represents proof of. 
uh, as a photo ID. And of course, in terms of card-based transactions, there's actually no public sector body has invested in the technology that can read the chip on the card. Uh, so, so what is the purpose of the actual card is another question that arises. So, so going back to about 2016, I had very specific concerns about what is the card? What does the public understand the card to be? Noises were being made by uh, officials in the uh, Government Chief Information Office and the Department of of Social Protection about expanded uses for the card. In particular, uh, they had mooted the idea that it would be used as a form of age card uh, for those over 18 uh, buying alcohol and off licenses or those over 21 trying to access over 21, 21's venues. Uh, and, and when we queried the legal basis for this, given that it was a card to access public services only, um, we, we didn't get very clear answers. So there were a whole range of issues that started to come together that ultimately drove us to open the investigation in October 2017. But I think a particular issue that arose is that we required the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection to publish uh, a frequently asked questions guide on on the public services card. And when they published that, they included a schedule in it of a whole range of public sector bodies that were imminently going to make their service conditional on procuring and producing a public services card. Uh, and examples that I've quoted from that schedule that's still on their website are, for example, making an appeal to the Department of Education about a school transport decision. So can you think of any reason why you might need to be safe to registered, which is the form of registration that precedes the issuing of the card, where your identity is authenticated uh, to such a substantial level in order to make a, a, a school transport appeal, which today doesn't require any particular form uh, of identity authentication? Um, so we we decided we're going to have to do this the hard way and, and we opened an investigation. Specifically, what module one of the investigation has been looking at is the uh, legal basis for the data processing around SAFE 2 and the public services card. Issues around retention of all the supporting documentation that's collected from individuals when they attend a face-to-face interview to register. Uh, and we've been looking at this whole issue of transparency. Uh, what's clear to the public? What isn't clear? What, what's been joined up behind the public services card when public sector bodies access another database called the single customer view? So we, we've been trying to look at a whole range of issues. We're also looking at um, photo matching templates uh, that are generated uh, in order to check if an individual has already attempted uh, to register and whether there's a legal basis for those arithmetic templates. And we're looking at um, issues around data that's collected by the department from private transport providers where individuals use a free travel variant of the card and what's the legal basis for Uh, that collection and what purpose is it being collected for? When you were doing that investigation and as you said like a lot of these the the use of the card started to kind of expand basically you know it started with social welfare and then kind of goes to driver's license and all that kind of stuff why was a department or various departments expanding um, 
the the kind of remit or the use of the card that you would have to use it across a suite of public services as opposed to just the initial social welfare piece? So what we learned from our interactions with officials prior to launching the investigation is that there was an interdepartmental committee established. It included the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection. It included the Department of, of Public Expenditure and Reform. And that committee was looking for further uses for the public services card. Uh, and we always said to them when, when they mentioned this to us, but that's the wrong way around you should have a necessity for some form of identity authentication and the card rather than looking for uses for the card. And and so ultimately, we've essentially found that there's an artificiality to some of the um, conditional requirements for the card that that were proposed to be implemented. In fact, a lot of them have have been rolled back. So, I, I mean, in many ways, because our investigation uh, was targeted at the Department of Employment Affairs, I haven't had an opportunity in the course of the investigation to ask other public sector bodies what their motivation was uh, and how they saw it as being a requirement. Uh, but I think it's clear that this interdepartmental committee that was seeking uses for the card most certainly had an influence on, on why things rolled out as they did. Right. You speak a lot about requirements, but say if you were like, it makes more sense to have a streamlined system would be like for convenience again, like we spoke of earlier. But why do such things like national identity cards spark, I suppose, um, interest around data concerns? So I, I think there's a whole range of reasons why uh, people can have concerns and objections to national identity cards. The, a starting point is often that people consider depending on the rules of the national identity card that it in some way changes the relationship between the citizen and the state particularly if it's one where you're forced to carry it on your person uh, and uh, and it's an offence not to produce it then uh, to a range of public authorities when required so so there there can be that whole issue but not every identity card has that rule uh, attached to it the other significant concern in answer to your question from a data point of view that people have is that when there is a national identity card, and it's even the case with the public services card, there's always a big database behind it. It it involves a system of registration and a creation of a database, often with biometric data now on it. Uh, and, And so people have rightly concerns about security when you create a big, valuable state database that literally has everyone in the state and including the judiciary to, to, to anyone else that might be registered on it um, and, and whether that's fully secure. But equally, when you have a big database like that, the, the other big concern is about, as I said earlier, what's been linked up in that database and uh, is the state now getting a holistic view of, of all of my transactions uh, with the state. Um, and so our ability to define our relationship differently with, with, with different players becomes limited. And that has nothing to do with fraud. It's yeah. simply to do with that we do tend to prefer to define our relationships differently um, as required. Uh, so, so they're some of the typical concerns. And I think what we've seen with the public services card is that you had some of those issues at play because Behind the public services card, public sector bodies that 
uh, access a person's PPSN and look up an individual when they present their public public services card or looking at a database called the single customer view, which is yet to be the subject of further investigation by our office. But we have handled uh, complaints in the past about that database. Uh, And when we handled complaints about that database in the past, we discovered that it contained a lot more data than simply public sector identity data set data. It had motor tax information and all previous cars owned by an individual who made an access request. And you might say, well, who cares that the state knows every previous car Uh, that I drove or every address I've previously lived at. Well, well, we might care in in circumstances where new policies are being designed and that information uh, allows and dictates decisions uh, that are going to be made about us. So, you know, there'll be some people listening who'll say, well, I don't care. I trust the government, whatever they need. And if it makes it easier, more efficient. (laughs) Um, But I I think these things, I I think we are right to uh, debate them, consider them Mm -hmm. and reassure ourselves that necessary safeguards are there. But that first and foremost, the policy direction and the intent is clear to us in the first instance, which I'm not sure we can say that in in relation to the public services card. Just to mention the issue of convenience, um, anyone who uses the free travel variant of the public services card, which of course is not using the public services card chip, it's using a special chip uh, that uh, complies with the NTA specifications. It's basically the leap card chip they find it very convenient and say, well, we think it's a very convenient card. But I think it's very hard to argue that if you're making an appeal against a school transport decision, there is any convenience involved in a new requirement uh, that makes it mandatory to go and register with the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection before you make that appeal to the Department of Education. So I think that that balance between benefits and uh uh, the downsides to the data collection cannot be clear to people either in the current circumstances. What were the main outcomes of your investigation that you think are the most important aspects? So th- th- the most significant finding that we made is that uh, essentially there is no basis for uh, the minister to process personal data where a person is is. Uh, applying for the card in order to procure of a service other than one from the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection, other than a benefit uh, from the department. So there simply is no basis uh, for these other public sector bodies to make their conditions, uh, to make their service rather conditional on it. Um, Another very significant finding from our point of view is also that issue of retention. A card can only be issued to an individual once the department has satisfied itself as to that person's identity. And there is a significant process of a face-to-face interview, a whole range of identity documentation, utility bills and supporting documentation that individuals need to bring with them. So once uh, the department is satisfied as to identity and issues the card, there simply is no basis for, there's no logic or basis uh, in data protection law for retaining indefinitely uh, all of that supporting documentation. There's a vast amount of sometimes quite sensitive information contained in in that documentation. 
And what can the state do to avoid making these mistakes going forward? Like, what's the next steps? So, so I think there needs to be a, a clear policy direction. What's the aim? What's the goal? What what will best deliver on that goal? Um, there needs to be significant discussion and debate around the features of uh, any type of registration system. The card is probably neither here nor there. Uh, that's going to be required and centralised in one government department but which applies when individuals are availing of services with other government departments. So there needs to be uh, a, a whole discussion around why it would be necessary to centralise it in that way. What benefits will it deliver to the state, but what benefits will it deliver uh, for the citizen and and really a lot more uh, transparency and coherence of policy. Mm. Um, thanks so much for, for chatting about that, Helen. We know this is an extraordinarily busy week for you, so we really appreciate it. But before you go, what other big investigations do you have coming up? Obviously, you mentioned these 10,000 <laughs> and then the other 61. But um, as you said, Will I list them all out. <laughs> I mean, what the, are the juicy ones? <laughs> this is such a massive area, growing area for, for people's own concerns. So what like, you know, kind of landmark ones or big ones are we going to see coming down the line the next year or so? So, so just to mention a few that are, that are national in, in scope, we have um, a range of investigations open currently into local authorities and the Gardaí in terms of surveillance technologies deployed. And principally, we're looking at CCTV, automatic number plate recognition technology that's deployed in, in uh, some areas. We're looking at uh, body-worn cameras and any other surveillance technologies that are being deployed. So again, we're looking at there's an authorization scheme provided for under the 2005 Garda Shikon Act. We're looking to see are the schemes uh, that are in operation all appropriately authorized. Uh, We're looking uh, at, again, the transparency information that that applies the signage on roads and in towns and whether it does provide the information that uh, individuals need. We're looking at the necessity issues around uh, some of what's been implemented, for example, the automatic number plate recognition uh, versions of CCTV cameras. Um, That's quite an intrusion on, on, on privacy. Uh, particularly depending on where they're located, you know, can be capturing something, someone several times a day going by and um, there needs to be a strong demonstration of necessity and so on. So that's a whole suite of investigations we have underway into state surveillance technologies that I think will have some interesting outcomes and, and, and definitely remedial actions that will be required. Um, I mentioned uh, big tech earlier, Uh, Aside from those, we have an awful lot of uh, investigations open into data breaches. One one of the features of the GDPR is that it made reporting of data breaches that pose uh, risks for data subjects uh, or individuals mandatory to the Data Protection Authority. So again, uh, we're into the high thousands of uh, breaches notified uh, to us this year. Uh, and and we're, we've opened investigations into uh, quite a number of those where um, there there are issues of of ransomware, there are issues of um, 
there are all sorts of of issues involved in the breaches and and we've picked a cross section uh, of of breaches notified that we hope again when we conclude on them will set set precedents uh, and and lay down guidelines for other organizations and pitfalls that they can avoid Helen Dixon, Data Protection Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. That's been so informative and we really appreciate you coming in on such a busy week. No problem, thank you. And now to our fave bits. I actually meant to mention this last week um, or maybe even the week before but it's definitely been one of my fave bits this month and it is Ashling B's show This Way Up. Um, it's on Channel 4. It's, all of it is up there on the Channel 4 player if you want to check it out. Ashling wrote and stars in it. Sharon Horgan stars as her sister. And it is a brilliant, brilliant show. It is so well written. The premise of it is that um, she's this kind of woman, young woman who has had a breakdown. She's coming out of essentially like a treatment facility and trying to piece her life back together. But it's so moving and so smart and the writing is brilliant and it just gets a lot of things really right. feels very real. It's very funny. The acting is fantastic in it and it's just a real, um, I don't know, Not it's not a step up for Ashling B because obviously we know how talented she is already. But being able to see her writing fully realised um, in a show is really, really great. So go her. Um, I had a good chat with her recently in London about it for an interview I did with the Irish Times and as ever she was just really fantastic on it and she's you know really on the up I suppose she has her Netflix show coming up with the Paul Road as well so go Ashling. and if you haven't watched it all the episodes are up there watch it this way up on the Channel 4 player Snaps for Ashling. Woohoo Andrea, my favourites. Well it's getting to that time of year where I sit down with my Fringe Festival catalogue and put all the pages down of the shows I want to go to I love Fringe Fest and it's a really good way of not having to commit to long shows because I have a short attention span like most people who have a phone these days but you can it's also an affordable way to dive in and out of things that are experimental and exploratory and I just think it's a really great time of year yeah it's a brilliant festival um, so can't wait to start booking all my shows and my other fave bit is um, Atelier Macer which is run by Macer um, is hosting Connor Creighton doing the Berlin Boys Club which is a nomadic man's group exploring healthy masculinity and I love that um, a space that's so and I don't know what definitions alpha and all that have anymore but like for such a, a lad's lad of Mazer to be hosting uh, these kind of workshops is really good and they've been selling out like in its in they've been doing meditation and now the boys club so it's uh, I think it's a really good conversation that's starting to happen in the city Brill get in the sea this week I've decided to take it over <laughs> what because of my spurts of energy that are coming out of me today well because I have something that just needs to get in the sea I went to see 161 minutes that I will never get back in the cinema of Quentin Tarantino's new film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is fucking terrible. And I'm just astounded by all these reviews that are like, oh, it's back on form and so well shot. And okay, the cinematography is okay. But it's, I don't know why I did it to myself because I knew that I was going to hate it, but I just felt like I had to see it to have an opinion on it. And I just feel like it is... Um, really annoying and kind of offensive in a very subtle way. So it's this film with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and it's based loosely around the... um, In 1969, around the Sharon Tate murders. 
And as um, my girlfriend Sarah was saying, it's like one long exercise in negging, you know, that kind of pickup artistry thing where people are kind of gaslighting you. Like Tarantino does all of this stuff that he knows he's taking a pop at various things from like um, underage girls, you know, demanding to have sex with men, you know, because secretly they want it, don't they? When like Polanski is a character in your film, like get in the actual sea. Loads of stuff around um, foot fetish type, you know, imagery, because obviously Tarantino is obsessed with feet and there's loads of stuff around like, you know, women's feet. Um, it just feels like he's trying to be to skirt around the edges of creepiness and that that is somehow justifiable because he's not completely going full on there. And then obviously there's just loads of violence against women in it. Uh, but it's OK, you know, because there are people in the, you know, Charles Manson's family. So, you know, who cares? They're evil. I just think it's absolute trash. And I just don't understand why people are saying, oh, Tarantino's back on form. And... Um, that's it for me now with Tarantino. Obviously, he is Captain Problematic, but uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, get in the sea. No life raft for you, Quentin. No what? Life raft. What do you? Oh, in right, okay, in the sea. Maybe okay. take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I've just spent. <laughs> At prox 10 minutes talking about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood off mic, none of which you will ever get to hear because it's completely libelous. Anyway, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and the Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. You can find links to all our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening, let us know. If you have any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode, drop us a mail or DM. More importantly, uh, give us money. Yeah, that's <laughs> <And> the one. <laughs> always forget. But also, so many people messaged us about our stickers. So we might oh, yeah. try and figure out how to distribute them. Yeah, we'll give we'll be sending them out to everyone on Patreon. Thank you so much to all of the folks who are continuing to sign up on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We really appreciate it. You're absolute bosses. And thanks to We Do Printing for our stickers. Yes, thank you, Keen. This week's tuna chicken roll. After a weekend of many tuna chicken rolls, Andrea, I think. So many tuna chicken rolls. Uh, I kind of felt like after the Girls Aloud song I lost all my credibility even though it's an absolute tuna uh, well no the Saturday song oh yeah what did I say Girls Aloud oh yeah I always do that anyway whatever pop song this is a little rave number it's DJ Coe's pick up and it's an absolute banger I've been Una Mullally I've kind of been Andrea Horan <laughs> this has been United <laughs> Ireland and that was the public service card in your data <laughs> what <laughs> I don't know goodbye <laughs> <laughs> It's sad to think It's sad to think I guess neither one of us Wants to be the first to say Wants to be the first to say goodbye
Wants to be the first to say goodbye. 